0: Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. I'm joined as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. On this podcast, we've talked a lot about getting the most that we can out of our lives and also about our relationship with death. One of the things that we haven't talked about very much so far, though, has been grief and the process of coming to terms internally and externally with the deaths of others, particularly when those deaths have been somewhat traumatic in nature. Neither Dr. Hansen nor myself would describe ourselves as experts in this topic, but today we have the absolute pleasure of being joined by somebody who is Dr. Joanne Cacciatore. Dr. Cacciatore is an associate professor at Arizona State University and founder of the Miss Foundation, a volunteer-based organization providing counseling, advocacy, research, and education services to families experiencing the death of a child. She specializes in counseling those affected by traumatic death, and she is a member of the American Psychotherapy Association, the Association for Contemplative Mind in Higher Education, the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies, and the National Center for Crisis Management. She spearheaded and directs the Graduate Certificate in Trauma and Bereavement Program at ASU and is also an ordained Zen priest affiliated with Zen Garland and its Child Bereavement Center outside of New York City. She's also the author of Bearing the Unbearable, Love, Loss, and the Heartbreaking Path of Grief. Her research has been published in a number of peer-reviewed journals, and she's been featured in the New York Times, Boston Globe, CNN, NPR, and the Los Angeles Times. As you might expect, during this episode, we explored a lot of topics that can be really challenging for people. The conversation was soulful and deep, and I mean, for me, honestly, at times, quite emotional. If this is territory that you find challenging, stirring, uncomfortable, or really anything else, I want to really encourage you to go as slow as you need to go here, including if it's appropriate for you skipping this episode altogether. As a second quick note, unfortunately, during the recording of the episode, there was some background noise. We don't actually record in a soundproof studio or anything like that. And sometimes there's not that much that we can do about it in the moment, unfortunately. During some episodes, I don't think it's that big of a deal, so I don't mention it. Uh, But during this one, because the topics we were talking about were so intimate, I think that it would be possible to find that background noise a little bit distracting. So I just wanted to acknowledge it before we start today. So, Doctor, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, join us today here. How are you doing?
1: I am doing beautifully, and I am really glad to be here. Thank you for bringing me on to talk about this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's such a deep topic, and... For a variety of reasons, we haven't really treated it yet on the podcast. This is the first dedicated conversation that we're doing around a topic of grief. And uh, we really wanted to be speaking with somebody who knew the territory very deeply when we did, because, you know, as you know from your experience, there are a lot of colloquial assumptions that can be made about the grieving process that just end up being wildly inaccurate and indeed actually kind of harmful as uh, people do kind of good faith efforts that blow up spectacularly in their face. Yes. So I think that it you know makes sense to begin with your personal story here, which you share so beautifully in your book, if you're comfortable with that.
1: Absolutely. So how I got into this field was that I was a mom raising three young children and was pregnant with my fourth child. And in 1994, she died very suddenly and they could not find medical cause of death. So it on her death certificate, the cause of death is unknown. And that sent me sort of, it spiraled me down into a very, very, very dark place where I wasn't sure I wanted to live anymore. I didn't even know if I could. There was a significant and palpable absence of social support and misinformation. People felt like because I had three other children, I shouldn't feel so sad. That because she was a baby when she died, I could just have another one as if children are interchangeable. They felt compelled to tell me that this was God's will for my life. They felt compelled to tell me a lot of things. Platitudes were not in shortage during this period of time. I felt very alone, very isolated, even from, sadly, from the, closest, the people closest to me, because there is so much myth and misinformation out there about grief, particularly when traumatic. So I was flailing around a bit, not sure I was going to survive. And somehow emerged from it, went down into sort of what I call the hottest parts of hell and decided that I would devote myself to the service of others to honor this little person who was here far too briefly, but who would always matter in the world. And so since then, I've devoted myself to the study, to the empirical study of traumatic grief and to the care of those suffering traumatic grief.
2: Do you mind saying her name?
1: Not at all. So her name is Cheyenne, and um, she was born and died on the same day, July twenty seventh of nineteen ninety four. She was eight pounds twenty one inches long. Beautiful girl, natural childbirth. So we don't really know what happened, and I don't think that we'll ever know what happened. But at some point in my grief journey, I had to just come to peace with the idea that even if I knew why she died, it would not. It would not alleviate. It would not palliate the deep pain that I felt in her absence. And so she would be 25 now. She would be 26 years old next year. And I say that I'm not sure what happens beyond this world. But I live each day as if one day, if if my energy touches hers again, that I will have made her proud.
2: Well, and I really offer this with the utmost respect. Really, there's a sense for me of. there's there's an awareness of her, and also an awareness of so many other children and so many other beings who have died tragically, died too soon, and the and the ripples of consequences for others. It, it's like we don't see them necessarily, and but but we know about them. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. And. A really small version of this is that sometimes I'll work as a therapist with a couple that's heading into divorce and I happen to know they've got some children. And even though I've never seen their children and they're not in the room when I'm working with the couple, they're here, they're, they are, they're stakeholders with us here. And yes. I, I just kind of want to acknowledge the magnitude. Uh, you dealt with it in a very particular way. Both my kids you know, have made it. You're looking at one of them right now. Uh, and still, it just strikes me as one of the most devastating and difficult and extraordinary things that can ever happen. And I just kind of want to name the degree to which that is actually the case right now in the world today. It has been the case as long as humans have ever walked the earth, and it's very, very real.
1: Yeah, it is very real. And thank you for acknowledging that. I think I think one of the things that happens in our societies we're certainly death aversive, but we're even more so. Anachronistic death aversive. So, we don't like to talk about the deaths of children at all, at all. And so, what happens is we cut ourselves off, in a sense, psychologically and emotionally. We cut ourselves off from that. And in doing so, that gets passed down even intergenerationally. I'm talking specifically about my own family system, wherein I discovered that my mother was the namesake of two dead children, but I didn't discover that until I was. I was in my late twenties, so my mother was Josephine, and my grandmother's first child who died was also Josephine. She was almost two when she died, and then her, she had another child very, very quickly. Named that child Josephine. That child died at nine months, and then and my So the, my mother's the namesake of two dead children, about which no one spoke. Yeah, and it affected my grandmother's capacity to parent and emotionally connect and thus that affected my mother, and thus that affected me. This is the most important thing we have as human beings, and that is our social bonds and our connections to people we love. And until we start remembering our dead and talking about them in a way that brings them present in the moment, we will continue to repeat these really dangerous and harmful psychological patterns of denial, avoidance, suppression, repression,
2: leaving it out, what's left out. You know, you have a Zen background, like I have something of that as well. You know, that's saying nothing left out. And yet you're really speaking to what we leave out, including due to cultural norms.
1: Uh, and I talk about this in my book, you know, I call it the happiness cult. Mm. And so we pursue happiness to such a degree that anytime we don't feel happy, there's something wrong. You know, we have to feel happy. And in so doing, people who suffer are often marginalized and told you have to feel something other than what you legitimately feel. Ironically, when we force people to bring the bottom up, we simultaneously bring the top down. What do you mean? They end up living a very contracted, because unless you can feel all of your emotions Uh, that are right yeah. so so then so then your life becomes smaller more manageable certainly but smaller and so you're not feeling the depth of the pain but you're also not feeling the euphoria of the sunset i mean the magic of which is what you know sort of being fully present or mindfulness is all about is about awareness awareness of deep suffering indeed and also that's not the only part of the story yeah. that's just part of the story right and so you know, by by allowing ourselves to feel deeply the pain, we also increase our capacity to feel other things. I I tell people I use metaphors a lot and I tell them it's my crayon box. My emotions (laughs) are my crayon box, right?
2: Crayons. Yeah.
1: That's right. And I want the biggest, most diverse crayon box there is. I don't want people to go through and pick out the drab colors or the ugly colors for me. I want all my crayons because they're my crayons and I claim them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And part of what you're speaking to here, Doctor, that I think is really beautifully articulated and particularly the crayon metaphor, but really just that idea in general of bringing the top down and the bottom up and living in this very tight uh, middle range of emotion where there's not a lot of fluctuation from the high to the low because you feel that any fluctuation there could plug you into quote-unquote an episode as some kind of a negative downward spiral, an upwelling of emotion. One of the things that we've spoken about previously on the podcast is for people who are dealing with major depressive symptoms, and we might end up talking about that a little bit in this episode because there's a big conversation about the interaction of grief with depression and some of the problems there in terms of the removal of bereavement exclusion and the DSM and all of that, and that's a big thorny topic that I know you're extremely familiar with. (laughs) I am. In short, there are people, particularly people who kind of lean more on the quote unquote conventionally bipolar end of the spectrum where a big swing of emotion up can trigger a big swing of emotion down. And I think that there are people who, let me know from your experience, but when they're in a profound grief state, when they've really have those negative experiences and emotions, just like right outside knocking on the door. There's a fear about experiencing any kind of good emotion as well, because the trigger lanes between those two experiences can really be pretty tight and pretty narrow. I would love your kind of thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, so a couple of things. Generally speaking, when I'm working with people and their emotions around grief, I never sort of dichotomize them as negative or positive. They're just emotions, right? And so there's no bad emotion or good emotion. It's just an emotion Mm -hmm. and all of them are valid. And so when someone is experiencing, for example, deep, dark despair, uh, okay, we're experiencing deep, dark despair. Let's, Let's just watch it and see what it does. We need not judge it. We need not avert it or grab it. We don't have to cling to it. We don't have to push it away. Let's just watch it and just see what happens with it. And what they often see is as they deepen their capacity to trust themselves with the hard emotions, Mm. then they have less fear and less aversion.
0: Mm, mm -hmm.
1: It's a little bit like, so I love yoga. And so it's a little like a yoga pose, right? So the first time you try a complicated yoga pose that your body's never tried before your muscles say that's about enough of that okay and and if you're kind to yourself you back off just a little bit and then you practice again the next day and then you practice again the next day and you keep practicing and eventually those muscles soften because it's familiar it's a, and then you start to trust yourself and before you know it you're in the pose right it's the same thing with our emotions so there are people who the story is their story is especially when parents lose a child, what, and this is the story, what kind of parent possibly laughs when her child is dead, Mm. right? And I tell people the same thing about those feelings as I do about the other one. Just notice it and then let it, don't cling to it, let it move. It's, it's okay to ask yourself that question and then let it move right? Like, so what kind of parent, what kind of answer is there for that, right? And we process it. Sometimes we talk about it. Oftentimes there's no answer, right? And then we let it move and then it moves. And so I think so much of the work that I do is around psychoeducation and self-awareness with people. Because there's so many stories that are on the external, that are exogenous stories that end up becoming endogenous to us. We internalize those stories. And so many of them are based in the myths and and pressure, social pressure from our culture. Mm. And so I help people sort of tease out what's real to you, what's authentic to you, what's inside you versus what's being put on you Mm. by others. Mm -hmm. There's so many things to process in the experience of grief especially when it's traumatic with people, I'd say probably 75% of it is because of social pressure.
0: I think that's a really great summary of a lot of material and was you know, very helpful for me personally. So,
2: Yeah, as a, as a framework that we use and people who maybe listen on this podcast have heard before, I think it's useful to sort different forms of practice into three loose categories. The first one being to be with your experience just as it is. Let it be. Feel the feelings, experience the experience, maybe with some self compassion, maybe with acceptance, maybe with some insight. Unpack it, open it up, air it out. That's the foundation practice, central. It's, on the other hand, not the only practice. There is a place for wise effort, right? working with the mind, letting go of what's painful, burdensome, difficult, problematic, unwholesome, and so forth. And then also letting in the cultivation, the development of, you know, compassion, mindfulness, secure attachment, and all the rest of that. So all those three, that gives people kind of a framework here. So with regard to the first of those, which is to me, mainly what you've been speaking to so far, the importance of letting be and not jumping too quickly to letting go. you've, You've spoken about that as well. What have you found helps people be with what they're feeling yeah. because for many people, I think, and I'm a longtime psychotherapist and I've also been in the meditation and mindfulness world a long time. And often when we tell people, Oh, just open up to your feelings. That's like opening a trap door to hell. They're not resourced enough. And then they, they, they balk and they pull back from that. So what have you found really helps people to be resourced enough to, as you put it, bear the unbearable.
1: Yeah. So in my experience, the key for this is a person feeling safe. Yeah. Part of my work is, I don't know if you're picking it up from just my, you know, my massage, my being, but I I tend to be very warm. I tend to be very nurturing. I am not directive. I am extremely, the way that I practice is egalitarian. I come in basho to people. I come in, in, in a humble bow. I am not the expert here but I will be with you. And so so creating that safe space for people to explore anything they want, I am not afraid when, so I, you know, many, many people share with me, they don't want to live anymore. Yeah. And that doesn't scare me. I say, let's talk about what it feels like to not want to live. What parent wouldn't contemplate whether or not life was worth living when his or her child dies? Some, I mean, some more actively than others, indeed. But certainly it's the ultimate in existential crisis. And isn't that what philosophy says about existential crises, right?
2: So if people are on their own, if they don't have the benefit of sitting with you in the moment, uh, they're alone in their home, they're, they're on the subway, they feel horrible. How can people resource themselves to bear the unbearable in ways that are, are fruitful, that are, that, are, that are not harmful?
1: Yes, of course. I mean, wow, that's such a nuanced question with so many potential answers. I mean, some of the things, some of the main things that I encourage people to do, I'm a huge fan. You know, Viktor Frankl talks a lot about bibliotherapy. So, I, I mean, I love reading. And of course, be careful what we put into our minds, right? And on the other side of that, then expressing ourselves through writing. Now, not everyone is a writer. Some people are expressed in different ways, but some type of form of expression, whether it's drawing or art or creation of some kind. I am, of course, I think nature is an incredible teacher of of life and loss. I tell people all the time, get out on a trail, get out to a river, go to an ocean and just notice what nature's teaching you about your feelings. I barefoot hike. Not everyone, that's not for everyone, but I'm big. In...
0: <laughs> I would tap out very quickly.
1: <laughs> I just love to feel the earth on my feet and I learn a lot. I learn to pay attention. One time I was on a barefoot hike and I was, you know, I'm in Arizona, I'm in, I'm in, near, in the Sedona area and I was on a rocky trail barefooted and I, and I stopped to give my feet a rest and I noticed there was a, a cactus with all of these, you know, spiny painful needles. And in between the cactus growing just in between the needles was a tiny little daisy. And I was like, there it is, the beauty and the pain standing together. I tell people all the time, my horse is the best therapist I have ever met. Yeah, (laughs) The best therapist, far better than me. I work with a lot of indigenous native people. The native people I work with will come to me and they'll narrate their stories and they'll talk and sometimes they'll express emotion. But they'll. some of them will go out with my horse and sit with my horse and sob, yeah. weep, just weep. And you know what my horse does? The perfect thing. He just stands there with them. He doesn't hand them a tissue. He doesn't imply for them to clean it up. He doesn't tell them God has a plan for you or everything happens for a reason. He doesn't look at his watch. He just stands there and asks for nothing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful a beautiful thing. Yeah,
0: wonderful reflection and a great teaching. Absolutely. I remember in reading your book, one of the exercises that kind of stuck with me that you alluded to there was a practice of somebody writing a letter to someone. Yes. I believe that you actually did this yourself with a, a friend who had frustrated you relatively early in the book. And then you had a couple yes. other other characters throughout who I you instructed to write a letter to somebody, whether it be the person who had passed, somebody else in their life, whatever it might be. and and it reminded me actually of a practice that Rick teaches, which is write a letter that you know you'll never send. So you can write it just however you need to write it. And then you do whatever you do with that letter. Maybe you keep it, maybe you burn it in effigy, whatever the practice is that helps you kind of work with those experiences, it can be a very powerful way of interacting with that material. So
2: And then maybe even eventually send a a kind of appropriate edited version, you know. I think of the Hemingway line, right? Write drunk, edit sober. So, you know, it's like give yourself room to breathe and then maybe, maybe send something. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so in talking
0: with some of those other practices, of course, so much of your work, as you're just saying here, is about that letting be, about experiencing the experience fully. And in that framework of, you know, let be, let go, let in, I think that letting go of grief is kind of a misnomer. You know, it's, uh, yeah. it's not something, you don't really let it go. I mean, I've never had an experience in my life that I would call it a moment of traumatic grief, but I've definitely had other experiences of kind of slow grief, a, a grandparent passing away or even the little deaths that Rick was alluding to, a time in your life when you know you'll never be somewhere again, do something again, relationship that comes to an end, whatever it might be. Even though letting go is kind of the wrong language or a misnomer, whatever it might be, I think that probably everyone who, and of course, from your experience, let us know, probably everyone who goes through that process of traumatic grief does not want to stay in the trauma stage of it for the rest of their life. So somewhere in there, sharpening, it's kind of softening the rough edges of it.
1: Well, okay, so you bring up a really good point for us. And that's and that's the difference between trauma and grief. So, mm-hmm. So here's trauma and here's grief. And if you have a Venn diagram, there's an overlap in the center. So not all trauma evokes grief and not all grief is traumatic. All of my work really is in the center where trauma and grief intersect. Now, having said that, the difference with trauma is trauma is such a somatic experience, right? So you can actually measure trauma in the body. Pupils dilate, heart rate increases, blood pressure increases, respiration uh, is just pedal to the metal. You have a sweat response. So trauma is very, very measurable. Grief is a little more subtle. So, So the reality is... There are things that we can help people with as providers. One of the things I know I can't do is ameliorate someone's grief, nor do I wish to try. And in fact, if someone tried to take away my grief, I would fight pretty hard to keep it. That's my grief is mine. That's my emotion. And I will always feel it. I will be a little old woman someday on my deathbed. And I will still say, I still grieve for my dead child. Now, the trauma is a little bit different, mm-hmm. right? So the trauma, like you you just alluded to, the rough edges of trauma can be extremely hard because they show up in such a strong and powerful way in the body, and actually can make us sick if we're not working with it and it's sustained. What's the underlying emotion in trauma? It's fear. If it's not fearful inducing, if it's not fear inducing, it's not trauma, right? Mm. If you're terrified of a roller coaster terrified, absolutely terrified, and I force you to get on, that could be a traumatic experience for you, whereas for someone else, it's not. Right. Right? It's how we interpret our trauma and how we process our trauma and also how we experience our trauma.
0: That's a wonderful distinction that you're making there. And I really appreciate the clarification. I think it's a great clarification. So in your, as you said, in your expertise, you live at the center of that Venn diagram. So what is some of the the work, the practices, the techniques that you give people to kind of start to untangle from the traumatic element of that process?
1: Yeah, so so that's where you can get into some really interesting psychoeducation, helping people, I say eat clean play dirty. <laughs> I really I tell people come to the farm and sweat if you can. Sweat, get back into your body because the the defining characteristic of trauma is you're out of your body. So get back in your body with good, hard work. That's one of the reasons I love taking my shoes off. I ground, right? It's a very primal bodily experience to feel things in the sole of your feet. So, all the body work stuff, massage can be helpful if someone is tactile and not not haptic, aversive. (laughs) Exposure therapy, we know. From the research for most people, now here's the key, for most people, exposure, narrative therapy over and over, telling the story over and over and over, we know that exposure works. So habituation works, even in nature. So telling the story, but it has to be, it really has to be in a safe context. I believe 100% it's the quality of the relationship with the therapist that has the most impact on people who are traumatically bereaved.
2: Including if your therapist happens to be your horse
1: including if your therapist happens to be your horse. That's right. That's right. That's right. So I think telling the story over and over and over again in this context of feeling safe and held, feeling resonance with another human being who doesn't judge, who lets it be, who meets your pain with compassion and tenderness is one of the most profound things. I work with a bereaved mother who lost her nine-month-old baby by accidentally dropping a television on her. A heartbreaking, incredibly traumatic story. And her body had a very strong reaction. You could actually, when she would talk about the story, when I first started seeing her, you could actually see her leaving her body. She would leave her body. She would be telling the story in third person. She was not ready to get back in her body until she felt completely safe to do that. And that was when she met me and she could get back in her body and we could do some of the work of approaching, okay, that's, that's enough. Let's back off a little bit. Let's stay with it. Let's stay with it. You know, and that meant, that meant sometimes her being on the floor in my office for 45 minutes sobbing. And I have to be okay with that as a therapist, as a provider. We providers have to be okay with the expression of unbridled pain when it's that big. It can be scary.
2: I think that uh, what Forrest was kind of getting at earlier, as well, is that first, as as you know vastly better than I do, grief seems to have its own rhythms. It's intense, and then it seems to fade. And you might think to yourself, "Oh wow, you know, I, I'm going to mourn the loss, but I'm not going to be upset about it again." And then suddenly, it grabs you by the throat when you see someone else walking through the mall with their kid in a stroller, or anything like that. Right? It just comes and goes. And it has its own rhythms. It's it's very natural, I think kind of underlining so much of what you're saying here is about nature and the rhythms of nature and us as big furry, you know, the soft animal of the body, right? Mary Oliver's line, big furry scared monkeys. I <laughs> think of us that way. And who love each other and and we're so vulnerable. So it it's it's of our nature to grieve. And that's part of it. And there's a rhythm to it. And where people get into a lot of trouble, I've seen, is they try to hurry the river, <laughs> as it were. They try to make it flow faster in themselves or with good intentions or not good intentions, flow faster in other people. Often because, as you've said, either as a therapist or as a family member or a friend, their grief makes us uncomfortable for whatever reason. And we want to handle our own discomfort by shutting down their grief. And that's really problematic. And so I just kind of wonder if you could speak to this.
1: Oftentimes, people come to me probably about 40% of the time, people come to me and say, you're my last hope. I've been to three EMDR therapists. I've been to two DBT therapists. I've, been, I've tried ACT. I've tried Can MCBT. you unpack those
2: acronyms for the civilians who are listening, please?
1: <laughs> uh, EMDR, uh, thought field therapy, emotion-focused therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy. They've gone through the list of interventions and they sit down and they say, I need help because there's something wrong with me. And then I say, well, tell me about you and tell me about your your child who died or your husband who died by suicide or or your parents who died, who was murdered, right? And they'll tell me and everything that I'm hearing is quite normal. And I said, well, tell me I mean, given the circumstances are so abnormal, right? And I said, well, tell me about why something's wrong with you. Well, it's been four months and I'm still so sad. Wow. Really, this happens. And I say, well, could it be that the people who are telling you that after four months, you should be okay, that there's actually something wrong with them and not wrong with you? And people are so relieved to hear that. Yeah. They are, they really believe, they really buy into the myth of our culture that if you're not done grieving and if you're not okay after 4 months that there's something wrong with you mm. and that's a real disservice to people and i think we're causing a lot more suffering by not allowing people to be with their suffering
2: oh i have a very close friend uh, forrest will know who i'm talking about i won't say his name grew up in a really tough neighborhood working class background tough guy in the construction industry and he lost his own son to uh, to cancer when the son was 19. And that's probably at this point, 40 years ago, every single time my friend thinks of his son or talks about him, he starts crying. It's as, it's as intense and as fresh, he says, as the day it happened. That's normal yeah, for him. Yeah.
1: You know, crying is, is the act of a warrior. I mean... You know, seriously, in a culture that prizes laughter and comedy and good times and hedonism, it takes a warrior to say, you know, no, what? No, I'm standing up with my fists in the air, with my tears streaming down my face, and I'm going to choose to remember someone I love.
2: Be brave enough to miss them, to have a heart open enough. I had a, I had a teacher myself at one point, he used the language of keep the wound of the heart green. It's kind of a poetic way to put it.
1: I love that. I absolutely love that. Yep.
2: There's something profound about it. You know, the first noble truth, as you well know, right? The ennobling task of facing suffering.
1: Well, okay. And so Victor Frankl says that. He says that in Man's Search for Meaning. He said, he said, we need to stop shaming people who suffer. We need to start seeing human suffering as ennobling instead of shameful. Because shaming them leads to learned meaninglessness is what he says.
2: So I wanted to underline something that's, Implicit in what you've said that's striking to me. When we have a, let's say, a loss, one kind or another, there can be a sense that something is taken from us. So there's a natural movement I see in people to want to heal or repair by receiving from the world in some way, shape, or form. And yet, actually, remarkably, paradoxically, so much of the healing comes, as as you've clearly demonstrated, from giving forth. Giving forth our own compassion, giving forth repair and rescue of others, you can't do anything literally about the daughter you lost. On the other hand, there's something you can do every day for the sake of the animals you live with, besides human animals and and all the rest of that. And so, I think that's really striking to me how people can repair losses by being more generative themselves, just broadly.
1: So, I think one of the things that I want to say about that is there is no doubt that that has has helped me find meaning and purpose in my life again. And that I would gladly give it all back to have her. Here's the way that I've always thought about it. I want to bring her love to the world in any way that I can. And I also don't want to do that because I I would rather her be here. Yeah. And also, I don't have a choice.
2: Yeah.
1: Right? And so I think people... I think that that sort of that idea of transcension or post-traumatic growth as we call it in the empirical studies, right? I think that what we tend to do in the West is because we reward people for that. I mean, I'm rewarded for this all the time where people are like, Oh, look what you've done with your loss, isn't it wonderful? And I I don't see it that way. I see it as necessary, not wonderful, but necessary. And When we reward that, then there's an implicit message to people who are grieving. You have to hurry up and get to this place because then you'll be rewarded and we won't look at you like you're, like there's something wrong with you anymore. And, and the reality is I, for two and a half years, was in the deep, deepest, darkest abyss of despair, my darkest, longest night of the soul that I could have ever imagined. And I refused to let anyone Push me out, pull me out, coerce me out, medicate me out, I refuse to to drink, I refuse to use drugs, I refuse to do anything other than feel, and that's the all for me that's the only reason I am where I am now is because I felt it all
2: yeah, mm-hmm. wow, so <laughs> huge <laughs> underline, thank you and I want to. Kind of freelance a question here. Okay, Forrest doesn't know this is coming. I'm, but I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> it. It's something I've been reflecting on a lot, which is, what do we do with anger and the healthy aspects of anger that have to do with moral outrage, moral disgust? And I'm thinking of someone I know I'll be a little vague about the details, who had some really terrible things happen to a child due to the medical system. And uh, she actually had to really fight with the medical establishment to get some life-saving procedures for her son, who's actually is doing okay and has recently had children of his own, grandchildren for her. And what's striking for me is that these events that in her life happened 20 years ago, probably, it seems like she's gotten through the sorrow and the grief, including the grief of lost possibilities But what she's still burdened by, maybe this is for her, that second dart that you know or second arrow the Buddha talked about, the unresolved anger about it all. That's the hot, red hot stone that she's still carrying around. And so to me, it's just a very deep question. What do we do with anger alongside the grief? And I think sometimes people can actually have worked through the grief, but what is unresolved still is the sense of injustice, that something terrible has happened and they, whoever they are, are still walking around scot-free. How do you, what do you say about that?
1: I mean, I work a lot with parents of murdered children, and that's the ultimate injustice, someone intentionally taking the life of your child. I use a phrase called righteous anger. Anger to me is not anathematic. It's not a, I don't see it as a, a problem. It's an emotion. I think that the underlying emotion itself isn't the problem as much as it is what we do with the emotion. Usually, usually anger is not always, but usually anger's secondary or sometimes even tertiary to some primary emotions like disappointment, frustration, sadness, grief. So if someone tells me I'm really, really angry, is it a problem for you? Let's talk about it. Let's unpack it a little bit. Let's explore it. Let's get curious about it. Sometimes we'll give anger a form. I'm really big into personification. So, what does anger look like? Let's invite him in the room. What does he have to say? If it's a he, maybe it's a she. What does she have to say? What does she look like? And then we start working with it. I think the more that we explore deeply our emotions without sort of seeing it as I mean, I understand the whole you're holding a hot pole thing. I'm not going to judge that. If someone feels the need to hold on to a hot pole, we'll hold on to a hot pole. I, I don't think in any sane society, I don't think children should be shot in their classrooms. Yeah. And I think you have a right to be angry when your 18-year-old daughter is abducted and raped. I mean, I I, I think there is righteous anger. And so I don't see it as a bad thing. I don't see it as something that we have to get rid of. I do see it as something that's asking to be explored. Yeah. Mm. And so I just explore it. I probably 75, 80% of the families I work with have a lot of anger. Sometimes the anger is outside. And sometimes the anger is directed at themselves. As parents, especially, we think we should have had some prescience or omnipotent power over the well-being and survival of our child, especially a very young dependent child, but sometimes even grown children. And so sometimes we can be angry with ourselves. And that can that can show up as guilt and shame. And so we, I just, even shame as a core emotional experience, like, Oh, let's talk about shame. Do you want to, do you want to, if you're okay feeling shame, I'm okay with you feeling the shame. I like, I have no problem exploring people's emotions or, and I have no agenda to get rid of people's emotions. Mm -hmm. If there's any agenda I have at all, and I'm not even sure this is my agenda, but it would be to show sort of shepherd people into knowing their emotions more intimately. Mm -hmm. Ironically, that seems to be the thing that helps them move rather than stagnate. If that
2: makes sense? Oh yeah, I think that's lovely. Including that word shepherd it just seems so perfect, actually, in the larger frame. And and I I kind of want to be clear how I was framing the example I gave. It's not so much that I I think there's a problem, but this person is suffering. I would say the the hot stone the hot coal, of the yeah. of the grievance and outrage that's that's just not metabolize. And I find that's really interesting. There's something maybe about sorrow, those aspects, you know, mourning, melancholia, you know, Freud wrote a great paper about mourning and melancholia, you know, and so forth. You know, that somehow it seems easier to process in an interesting kind of way. But the anger, there's something about it. I don't know. Is,
1: I What I would explore is what was anger like in your family of origin? Like, was, you know, because in some, in some, if you're talking about a family of origin, sometimes anger is the emotion no one's allowed to express but one person. Yeah. Right? one per, Only one person can express the anger and everyone else has to suppress it. It could be that, or it could be there's a, there's a social or a spiritual script about anger. So oddly, I mean, you know the saying in psychology, that which we resist persists. So if there's any resistance to it, and, you know, I mean, if she was my client and she was suffering with it, I would say I would probably help her personify it and befriend it. So how, so how can we get closer to your anger and really get to know it intimately in such a way that it doesn't feel like such a threat
2: anymore? So maybe the last question, if it's okay. I, and first I want to say that I feel like we could just yak in a, the best sense of that <laughs> word for a long time here, but just to uh, kind of bring it to a close, I'm imagining you as what you might've been like as a girl, you know, in your, in elementary school, even. and um if you could go back in time and talk with that fifth grade, fourth grade, sixth grade version of yourself, what would you want to say to her? What would you want to communicate? Hmm,
1: that is a really good question. I had a difficult, and yeah, I had some trauma in my childhood. So I think what I would want to do is just support her and be a friend, a, a friend who listened to her.
2: Well, thank you very much for doing this. I know it will help a lot of people.
1: Thank you for inviting me. Um, it, was, it was great to talk with you both. Thank you for the good work you're doing in the world, really.
2: Again,
0: Joanne, just thank you so much for taking the time here. It's been a really wonderful conversation. So today we had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Joanne Cacciatore. Joanne began the conversation by sharing her personal story, her own experience with traumatic grief and loss, and how that's informed her work ever since. The focus of much of the conversation was on the importance of being with the experience of grieving, of allowing yourself to feel all of the feelings, to not rush past them, and to not allow other people to rush you through your natural process. Nature was a major sub-theme, and as Rick said, there's a certain natural flow to the process of grief. Sometimes it rises, sometimes it settles for a moment, but Often, it always stays there in the background. Joanne made a really important distinction between trauma and grief. That was something that I found really personally useful and about how we can work with the trauma elements of grief to soften them or release them over time. But the idea of letting go of grief altogether is really quite the misnomer. And attempts to nudge people toward letting go of their experience can really be extremely misguided and indeed even very harmful. Joanne shared a number of wonderful practices for working through grief. Some of them came back to meditation and awareness practices. Others focused more on physical movement. She really emphasized the connection of trauma to the physical body and how a great deal of the process of working with somebody who has been traumatized is allowing them the space to feel at home and safe in the body once again. That can often be quite a process and it has its own flow and takes its own time. Throughout the conversation, Joanne really emphasized the importance of nature to her, the way that her relationship with nature has been a form of healing and growth inside of her own life, and some of the ways in which we can look at nature and learn from it. We close the episode with an investigation of anger and the times at which it makes sense to let anger be versus the times where it might make sense to start to let anger go to the extent that it's possible. Finally, Joanne had a really wonderful reflection about the ways in which people are often moved through their grief too quickly to get to that period of post-traumatic growth and how people are often rewarded for, wow, taking their negative experience and really turning it into something positive. And how for her, whenever she receives that from other people, she really feels more than anything else how she would be more than happy to give all of that up to have her girl back. And you could really feel the truth of that from her and the teaching there in terms of not moving people toward that post-traumatic growth too quickly. At the beginning of the podcast, I mentioned the Miss Foundation, which Joanne is the founder of. The Miss Foundation is a nonprofit providing services and support to families who have lost a child. If you would like to donate to the Miss Foundation, I'll include a link to it in the description of today's podcast. Also, as a reminder, Joanne's wonderful book is Bearing the Unbearable. If you'd like to learn more about it, I'll also include a link to that in the description of today's podcast. So until next time, thanks for listening.